Great. Let's pray. God, we count it a great privilege to be here tonight. Uh, I pray that as we <clears throat> as we dig in and as we look at some uh, wonderful truths, I pray that that our minds would be ready to engage that truth. I, I know that as we sit here, uh, there are many in this room that have already had a very long day at work or a long day with uh, the kids. Um, and my prayer is that as we engage um, some very lofty and very mysterious things, that, that you would ready our minds and ready our hearts. Uh, God, I'm thankful that the understanding that we have is not based on the, the eloquence of whoever's speaking and teaching, and so uh, I thank you for that ahead of time, and I do pray that we would all, uh, in whatever ways we get in the way of hearing the truth, uh, that we would do our best to uh, set our minds on the things above. God, we lift up the prayer requests that have been mentioned. We pray for uh, Zach as he has uh, been in a car wreck. Pray um, We don't have any details on that, uh, but we pray, um, thankfully knowing you're a sovereign God who's over all things, and so uh, if his health has been affected, we pray that it would um, be uh, that he'd be made well. But we also pray, um, as your word tells us to pray, that above everything that your will be done. Uh, we pray for Centerpoint uh, Church as they um, as they had a fire at their facility uh, this week, and we just we thank you corporately that the church is a people and not a building. And I pray that that would be something that resonates very clearly with them this week as they uh, persevere and, and work through this trial. I, I pray that um, as they work through this trial, that steadfastness would have its full effect, that they'd be perfect and lacking in nothing, as, uh, as your word says in James. And I'm just uh, thankful that, uh, we, that the people are a church and uh, that it's not about a building and that they can continue being the church even though a building burned down. Um, God, also pray for Ben and Christy and uh, Evan and Luke and Daniel as they travel. I just pray that they have a real sweet time as a family. Pray for the doctor's visits. Um, just pray for their time as, as they hang out and uh, have fellowship with one another. And I pray for safety as they travel. God, again, as we dig in tonight, uh, I pray for uh, clarity in our minds and uh, an open hearts that are ready to uh, receive your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all can go ahead and open up to Exodus. Uh, oddly enough, you can open up to Exodus um, this week, uh, Exodus 7. On Friday, I got a phone call from Ben, and he was talking about teaching on Wednesday, and, and, uh, and he said, hey, Scott, I'd like for you to teach on Wednesday. You up for it? And I should have said, why, or what do you want me to teach first? But I said, sure. And he said, okay, here's what I want you to teach. Um, I'd like for you to parallel, let me get this right, I'm teaching on it, I still have to look at it to get it right, I would like for you to parallel, or look at the parallels between the Revelation, Tribulation, Bulls, and the Exodus Plagues, that's pretty much it, that's what he said, and, uh, and I was like, alright, well, I'll probably need to study the imagery of the Revelation, Tribulation, I'd probably need to study the Exodus Plagues a little more. Uh, luckily, I feel like everyone in here has at least, at some point this last year, we've gone through Exodus and we've looked at the Passover pretty extensively, we've looked at the plagues, so it's not completely unfamiliar. Uh, also, Ben's been teaching through Revelation on Wednesday nights, and so those things are also not completely unfamiliar. And so, my hope tonight is to, um, is to look at 
those parallels between the two. And as we do, I want to encourage y'all, before we even start, it's mysterious. There are, it's very lofty, and there's a lot of points. There's about, uh, there are thousands of parallels that we could draw between the two, and I don't want to be too academic about it, um, but also I don't want us to just parallel, 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 and look at a thousand things. One of the things that Ben also warned me on is that um, the last time I preached on a Sunday, uh, which was a first, he said it was like five sermons in one, and so try to limit it to one. Um, if you can, that'd be great. And so I, uh, I realized there's some pastors that kind of have, it's almost a badge of honor, like, man, when you listen to that guy preach or teach, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You just got to come and be ready. And it was funny, I was having lunch with uh, Steve a couple days ago or yesterday, whenever that was, and uh, we were driving back and God kind of revealed to me, he was like, you know, you could die drinking from a fire hose. That was the truth he revealed to me. And so uh, you could become waterlogged, disoriented, uh, not much different than being very drunk if you drink from a water hose. And so I was thinking, let's narrow out as many of the things as we can and look at the most important things tonight. That's my hope. So here we go. What we're talking about tonight is redemptive history. Redemptive history is a phrase that I've heard growing up and most of the time had no clue what that means. So the pastor would be preaching and, oh, redemptive history, and this is what's happened in redemptive history. And I'm like, sweet got to figure out what this redemptive history thing is because that phrase is thrown around all the time. And so I tried to write a definition for it uh, as best as I could tell from what I've studied in Revelation and Exodus and other parts of the Scripture. And I feel like a good explanation, a good definition of redemptive history is the history of God redeeming a people for Himself by calling them out of righteousness, out of unrighteousness, and making them righteous. Does that make sense? Redemptive history is this thing that's been going on over the course of history, but it's redemptive in the fact that it's God redeeming a people for himself by calling them out of unrighteousness and making them righteous. You don't achieve righteousness on your own. If we learned anything from Sunday's sermon in Romans 10, it is Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is not an accessory to our righteousness. Christ is not what I need to be enabled to act right on my own. Christ is my righteousness. And that's what God does, is He calls people out of unrighteousness and into righteousness. And what I feel like has, that's another dangerous phrase to use, what I feel like. Um, As I read Genesis 3, the thing that stuck out is I really feel like this process of redemptive history, which we just defined, I feel like it began in Genesis chapter 3 when we run into the first time where redemption is needed. Well, why was redemption needed in Genesis chapter 3? Just throw out an answer. This doesn't have to be like a real formal thing. Why would redemption have been needed in Genesis chapter 3, aptly titled The Fall? Sin. Yeah. Sin's in the picture now, and so redemption is needed. And so I believe that redemptive history, as we're studying it and and the way we're looking at it tonight, begins in chapter 3 where redemption was first needed. And I believe that it ends in Revelation 21 and 22 when the new Israel is redeemed, completely redeemed, and united with Christ in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so tonight, we're going to go from Genesis 3... Revelation chapter 22, so in just a one hour. Um, we won't cover everything in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, uh, the history of God redeeming a people for himself by calling them out of unrighteousness and making them righteous. I just put, I think, next to that dot, dot, dot. Uh, 
So I, I think that it starts in the garden when we first need redemption because sin has come in and, well, we need to be redeemed from that. Adam and Eve tried to do that on their own. They tried to take their own shot at righteousness and all they came up with, what, all they came up with was fig leaves, which wither when you take them from the vine so they don't make good clothes. And so uh, God said, here, I'll give you righteousness. And, uh, and he explains that to him and he, he teaches him through that. And so as we look at these, this redemptive history tonight, there's two things that seem to stick out when we look at redemptive history, two results of redemptive history, the history of God redeeming a people. Um, one is a redemptive pattern, and two are these little micro-gospels. You've heard Ben talk about this before, but the micro-gospels, all throughout the Bible, um, all throughout the Scriptures, you see these little, what, what's the gospel, first of all? What's another name for gospel? Good news, and what do you call it Christmas time? Glad tidings. It's, it's a, that's the Christmas term for good gospel. And so, the gospel is the good news. The good news of what? Of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's our redemption. He is our righteousness. And so, all throughout uh, the scriptures, we see these little things, whether it's in the form of this, this story that is, has taken place or parables that have been told, where uh, the gospel is explained in this little picture of people who need redemption, who need righteousness, can't do it on their own. God gives them righteousness, specifically in Christ. And then a redemptive pattern. That's another thing we're going to talk about tonight, and again, I don't want to get too, uh, I don't want to feel like we're in a, a college class or something weird using big words. When I say redemptive pattern, it seems, oh, that's a good mic, um, it seems that uh, over the course of history, we see patterns, and that's why we're, we're going to compare the two plagues tonight, because they're real similar. It's patterns. Now, I want to be very, very careful because when I begin to talk about it, the redemptive pattern of God over the course of redemptive history, you can't put God in a box. The most dangerous thing I can do here is say, oh, this is how God works. This is his pattern. He does this, 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 and it equals this. So if ever you're in this situation, it'll be this, 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 and equals this. God's not so simple that we can just say, this is his pattern, and now I get it. So we've got to be careful. But what he does reveal over and over is that he has a way, as he goes to this process in our redemptive history that begins in the garden and goes to the end in the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we see patterns, and we see them in one place in the plagues, and so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, and again, we're taking a snapshot. We're, we're not going to look at everything there is to look at because it would be impossible. So we're going to take some, some snapshots. So look at Exodus 7. Uh, and again, I mentioned that th we don't want this to be just academic. The things we're going to be looking at are very mysterious, and so here's my hope for you tonight. As we look at these things, and your brain is stretched, I've been studying these things more in the last three days than I ever have in my life, and my brain hurts. And so it's gonna, it'll probably stretch you, maybe not, um, hopefully it will. And, and what I want to do is not try to say, oh, here's a parallel, let's pick it apart and say exactly what it means, and totally undo the mystery. That's not what I want to happen tonight. What, I want, what I'm hoping is that we will be a little more obedient in it and see that there's a mystery there. And we need to behold the mystery. We need to humbly stand in awe of this mystery. We need to look at the acts of God and be like, wow, that's amazing. That's what my hope is for tonight rather than just undoing the mystery. So look at Exodus 7. As we read, I want you all to think about this question and pay attention to this. Keep in mind that it's a big deal that God is served and worshipped by his people. As we read, it is a huge deal that God is worshipped and served by his people. And I want to look at why. Why is that important? So, here we go. Listen to all the repetition, starting in uh, Exodus 7, verses 14. I'm not going to read through all of it, 
I'm going to go and look at points because we've looked at these recently, but I want to make sure that we see all these different plagues. The first plague is the water being turned to blood. In, in verse 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Why is Pharaoh's heart hardened? Because God hardened it. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go. Why? That they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. And then in verse 17 it says, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, I will plague all of your country with frogs. Imagine that for a minute. Um, uh, crickets are horrible, and they're everywhere. I, I got to Starbucks early in the morning, and I was like, oh, nice fresh morning out. Going to get some coffee, and I go up. And like the whole side of the building's covered in crickets. And all I can think is, I don't want to drink anything from there or eat anything from there. That's disgusting. Replace the crickets with frogs and multiply it by a 1,000. I mean, that... That's disgusting. I mean, one frog in a small area can be disgusting if y'all have ever been around that. So, um, frogs, that's the second plague that we're looking at here. Uh, that they may serve me. And, uh, and then go to verse 10. And he said, tomorrow, uh, uh, well, this is the response. And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Okay, the third plague, gnats. You ever been to a barbecue where there's a gnat? Then this won't go away. Picture this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Consider that. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Um... Uh, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce the gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. <laughs> it's kind of a funny way of thinking. The magicians tried, they couldn't, so there were gnats on man and beast. Um, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. The fourth plague, flies. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. As he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. Uh, the swarms of flies also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen. Pay attention to that. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies will be there, that you may know that I am the Lord. Again, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Look at the fifth plague in chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But get this, but the Lord will make even a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Sixth plague, boils. 
This gets real gross. Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It should become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the, magi- the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Now, at this point, as we're looking at the sixth plague, I want to remind you, this is not a fairy tale that happened to land far, far away long, long ago. This happened. Th- this took place. It's not metaphorical. This happened. This happened with the people known as Egypt, because of the oppression of a people known as Israel, and it happened by the hand of a very mighty God who exists. Sometimes as I read Genesis and Exodus, and sometimes as I read Revelation, I think, hmm, this is like a fairy tale. This is cute. This is weird. That'd be weird if that really happened. Well, this really happened. This actually happened. And it's interesting, you see the, the magicians over the course, for the first couple, they were able to kind of put their own spin on it and make happen what, what, uh, what Moses and Aaron had made happen. And so they were a little bit haughty. Then they couldn't do it, and that's when they said, ooh, this is the finger of God. We, we can't really actually do that trick. And then now they've got boils on their feet, so they can't even stand up and say anything because they're covered in boils. So remember, this actually did happen. The seventh plague, hail. <coughs> the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. For this time I will send... All my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Again, there's none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. God, picture what God's saying there. He's saying, I I could have just smacked, wiped you out, snap of a finger, that's it. God's saying, no, my choice is to remind you here during the seventh plague that I want to do this with plagues. I want you to know my wrath. I want you to know that I'm a mighty God with a strong hand who judges perfectly. So he's not just an angry God who flies off the handle. He's not just a God who's like, ooh, I'm done with that. Snap. Done. See ya. We see this played out over the course of this redemptive history as we're talking about. Uh, Let's see. Eighth plague. Oh, before we get to the eighth plague, look at uh, Exodus 9 verse 26. Only in the land of, with the hailstones falling, big hailstones. Has anyone ever been in a hailstorm here? I have a 86300ZX, pretty sweet ride. And uh, 86, that's right. Um, and, uh, and it was damaged. It was totaled twice in one year because of hailstorms. And, uh, and, and it's sweet. It's got a bunch of dings in it, to say the least. Uh, but these were like, you know hail, like little, not even golf ball size, and it totaled this car twice. Uh, the hail that's going on here is bigger, and then when we get to the hail in Revelation, uh, you're talking 100 pounders. Uh, think about bowling balls falling from the sky. What's like the heaviest bowling ball? Six, 16? Yeah, 100 pound hailstones falling on people and animals and houses made of hay. Um, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. What happened to the people of Israel? Were they hit with all this? Were they, were they struck with these plagues? No. There's this place called Goshen, where they've been uh, placed by God, 
and they are not experiencing the things that the Egyptians are experiencing. Look at Exodus 10, the eighth plague, locusts. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and heard of his, ser- his servants, that I may show, harden his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Lord. So we see a, a, a responsibility of of, uh, of the fathers there to continue to say, when your kids ask why this happens, you tell them that the, the Lord has a strong and mighty hand and he's bringing the people out of Egypt. And he reiterates that later. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. <coughs> I'm really sorry, that was incredibly loud. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. So what the hail didn't take care of the locusts will, and they shall eat every tree, every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your, neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. And so I, I was watching the Discovery Channel the other night, because my wife and I are a little nerdy, and we like the Discovery Channel. And, uh, and it had this special on locusts, and they were coming in in swarms, and there were these village people uh, that uh, were digging holes and lighting fires trying to keep the locusts away because they knew that once those locusts were there, it was going to wipe them out. They were going to fill their houses. They were going to eat their crops. They were going to eat the trees. Uh, they were going to bring disease and, and all kinds of things to the animals there. And so it was a big deal, and you see these just village after village scurrying, and then you see these swarms of locusts, and it just looks like a this odd, awkward, big ball of locusts flying through the sky as it, uh, as it approaches uh, the final plague, is, or the ninth plague, darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. This darkness is not just, oh, it's dark, bummer. This is a darkness that's so, so dense, so very dark that it can be felt. Um, the, one of the things that Ben, in his notes of Revelations that I was looking through, he said, um, sometimes the, the worst thing than your senses being overexposed, like lots of heat or, or something that's real bright, um, sometimes what's worse than that is, is your senses being totally um, put in darkness to, to go with this, meaning that it can hurt to be in a darkness like that that is felt. And it's really hard to explain that because I've never felt that. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So the Israelites, they had light where they lived. Egypt, they did not have light where they lived, and all they did was sit there. I mean, well, I mean this, is, this is plague nine, and now it's dark, and I have to sit here for three days? All I'm going to be thinking about is that mighty hand of God. What, what, what's next? So let's look at what's next. The final plague, uh, Passover. Um, the tenth plague, look at Exodus 12, verse 29. This is kind of a long, detailed thing. I don't want to go into it all because we've already been through a lot of that. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Um, why do you think it was important that God is served and worshipped by his people? As we read through that. I think the main thing that sticks out is that uh, he is God. Uh, he, he's showing his power, he's showing wrath, and he's showing mercy as we see the Israelites not being um, <clears throat> bombarded with the same place that the, Egypt's, uh, that the Egyptians have, uh, have been hit with. Um, I, uh, I want to turn to Revelation now and look at the bulls of wrath very briefly and then draw some conclusions. It takes a while to go through these, and, uh, and that's hard. We might have two or three weeks on this. Um, well, here, just take one and pass it back. I think. I think there's enough. I don't know. Maybe not. We'll see. <clears throat> yeah, they're all the same. Um, I, I want to look. It, it's not just a fluke that the Revelation bulls of wrath have the same thing to do with, uh, with these Exodus plagues. It's not just a comparison that we're trying to pull out of the air to be artsy or smart or to try and think up something new. I believe what Ecclesiastes says, that there's nothing new under the sun. And I believe that, uh, that these are, are very real connections. And, and in fact, uh, one of the things that Ben and I were talking about is really what we're going to see in Revelation as these bowls of God's wrath are poured out at the end of time here, as they're poured out, what we're going to see is that it's almost like a reenactment of what we've already seen happen in Exodus with the plagues. And then there's a connection, and then there's something to get out of it, I promise. It's not just facts and academic stuff here. So as we turn to Revelation 15, um, before looking at the comparisons and parables, we need to know this. Um, well, you can see it. It's actually written in the very first couple verses of Revelation 15. This is John. Okay, John has been taken up in the spirit by an angel, and this actually happened. The things that John saw, he actually saw. They're very real, and they will occur. It's not a fairy tale, far, far away land. This has actually happened. And what John is saying about these things, specifically the seven angels with the seven plagues and the seven bowls of wrath, he says this in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1 in Revelation. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So the two things are this. The sign that John saw was great and amazing. What we're looking at, what we're about to look at here is great and amazing. Not tedious, not boring, not frustrating. This is great and amazing. Now some of those things can creep in, but specifically John wants us to know these things are great and they are amazing. And we also need to know that with these seven plagues, the wrath of God is finished. So to explain, there's seven plagues that are poured out by seven angels from seven bulls. Now, you've, I think you've probably heard Ben talk about how seven is this number in Scripture that's a picture of completeness, which is very appropriate here because what's revealed is that the wrath of God, when this is done, uh, the wrath of God is finished. And so this picture of completeness is very real. Now, before we even get to the plagues, look just a few verses down at uh, 15.3. It says, uh, seven plagues poured out by seven angels from seven bulls. Before we uh, get there, what was the response of the angels and the conquerors? What song did they sing? The song of Moses. Okay, there's a connection before we even look at the actual plagues. They're singing in response to this great, um, amazing thing. The response of song is the song of Moses. What song of Moses? The song that was... Uh, that when they were delivered out of, out of uh, the oppression, 
there was a song in Exodus, I don't want to go through it all because we don't have time, uh, that Moses sang. And they're very appropriately saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So they're singing the song of Moses from Exodus. Now, let's look at the plagues. Uh, The seven bowls of God's wrath, uh, Revelation chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice. Now, we know that this is God's voice because the verse before says no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished, except God. And so we know that this is God's voice. And it says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, look at all the comparisons here that happened in Exodus when God's people were being oppressed and they were in the midst of unrighteousness. And as God is pulling them out, drawing them out of that. Look at the parallels here. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl in the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the, temp- on the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Uh, in my handy-dandy little chart I made for you all, we can see that the sores match up with the boils. Uh, very similar. Uh, what's the next one? The second, uh, chap- uh, 16.3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of the water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So uh, on the top of that chart, we see the blood in the sea and the blood in the rivers and springs is, is equivalent to that plague we saw in Exodus, of the water being turned to blood. Now, what do you all think is significant about the, blood, uh, the water being ruined in an area of where people are? Well, yeah, you can't yeah, drink. I wasn't trying to be cute there. I just need a drink. Uh, you can't live without water, especially when your throat is drying on fire. Um, you can't live without water. Uh, you can't drink of it. And also, a lot of the trade and the commerce and, the, and the, the merchant things that took place there took place on coming in on the rivers and going out. And so all that water was turned to blood. And so we see that it's not just, oh, man, these gnats are horrible. Oh, man. These locusts are horrible, these frogs are horrible, but we see that the, the lifeblood of what's going on here in these communities is, uh, is being very directly affected. Um, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, <coughs> who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. We're going to come back to that one. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So that darkness, pretty obvious to see which one that matches up with, darkness. Um, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, which is the false trinity, those three things, um, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle. 
on the great day of the Almighty. We're not going to get into the whole, what this end war means as they're assembling, but specifically the, uh, the dried up Euphrates and the frogs kind of match up there with that second Exodus plague of frogs in Exodus uh, 8.1, the seventh one. This is the final one. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Ugh. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And those who weren't crushed, I guess, cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. I cannot imagine being hit by a 100-pound hailstone and still having the nerve to curse God. Um, these are things that are real. These are things that are happening. Clearly, these things are parallels. The fourth bowl, the one of the fire and the heat from the sun. Um, I wanted to point out a few things. It doesn't specifically match up with any of them, but it matches each plague in reference to the effects that we see of the plagues. A few things to consider before we jump into the really cool part of this. One is belief is not based on common sense. If you're being bombarded with things like locusts and frogs and flies and gnats and your cattle dying and blood and all the water... Um, common sense would be, wow, wow, this God is serious. His hand is mighty. Let's repent and follow Him. It's not based on common sense. Uh, it, it is, uh, it's not a cognitive issue. It is a heart issue here. These people are getting pounded, smashed violently by the hand of God, and they're not saying, oh, yeah, yeah, God clearly is real. Wow, did you see that hailstone? Let's repent. That's not what happened here. It's a heart issue. Another thing to consider is that suffering doesn't force repentance. Um, Suffering is a means uh, that I very much believe that God uses um, in trials as we are tested. I don't believe God tempts us, uh, but I believe there are trials. I believe we are tested, and I believe temptation arises from our own desires uh, and from the enemy. And uh, it's, it's necessary for us to know that suffering doesn't force repentance necessarily. Um, there are people over the course of uh, this redemptive history that we're talking about that have tried to um, torture people. Believe. Believe or I'll cut your head off. Believe or I'll beat you senseless. Believe or I'll kill your family. That doesn't cause real belief. That's expressed here in the fact that people are covered in boils. Their, their skin's actually being burned by the heat of the sun, and they're not turning. Torture does not, uh, you cannot be coaxed, you cannot be tortured into repentance. That's not how it works. Hate for God will continue in hell. There will be no one who will say, if I only had one more chance, or no one, be no one in hell looking up and saying, God, please, I love you, give me another chance. They'll be just like the people seen here that are struck and nailed and bombarded, and they still say, I curse God. I curse God. I curse His hand. I curse this thing that He's done to me, and I want nothing to do with Him. I have no love for Him. That's what continues. Now, <clears throat> what can we see about God's wrath in reference to these plagues? It's a weird question, but go for it. What do we know about God's wrath? We've just see it, seen it poured out in the Exodus plagues and the Revelation plagues. What do we know about the wrath? What have we seen? Yeah, yeah, but that's definitely a part of it. No repentance. They're, they're, you don't see Egypt falling on their faces before a holy God and saying, we love you, Father, forgive us. It doesn't bring repentance. What else do we see about His wrath? Severe. Yeah. 
That's like the big thing that just nails me. I'm like, really? Hundred pound hailstones? Really? All the livestock in the family? I mean, really? Plagues like this? Really? This really happened? Houses were filled with frogs and flies and gnats and all these horrible things? Rivers turned to blood? That's severe. What, what I want us to know and understand about God's wrath, which honestly, not until the last few years have I even considered it, because as a kid, it, it's hard to teach kids about God's wrath. That, that's very real. If you're a parent, it's hard for you to sit down and explain fully, hey, kid, this is the wrath of God. Let me tell you about big 100-pound hailstones crushing children, man, woman, cattle. That's difficult. And so a lot of times, kids will go all the way through their childhood and not hear anything about this, but some of the th- a couple of simple things we need to understand about the wrath of God is long-suffering, prepared, premeditated, not short-fused. Uh, it's not an anger that just goes, bam, God's mad, wiped it out, bam. No, it, it was poured out over time. It was placed specifically in seven separate bowls and given to seven different angels that went and poured it out at the right time. And so it wasn't just a flash-in-the-pan, short-fused anger. It's very different. When I get angry, um, well, not me, but when other people get angry, sometimes they, uh, they'll just punch the wall or, or raise their voice or storm off or, or cuss or whatever. And then they're like, oh, that was dumb. Our anger, is, God's wrath is very different from our anger. And, and they're very, very, um, very unsimilar. And so um, it's good for us to understand that this was a premeditated, uh, prepared thing by God. Okay, so I said ahead of time. I mean, I'm telling you, that's hard. What we just read, what we just went through, that's hard to pay attention to. That's like, wow, that's a lot of really hard, heavy, fairly violent stuff. It, it is, but I don't want this to just be academic. So it's not academic. It's not about finding these parallels that an author wrote in a book and then patting ourselves on the back and being like, look how smart we are. We found all these parallels. How cool is that? That's not what this is about. This is about a message from God to his people throughout redemptive history. I believe in the, in the course of each of these things happening, back in Exodus, the ones that will happen in the future that have been revealed to John by an angel in Revelation, these, there's a message that God is giving to his people over the course of this whole redemptive history. To understand the message, we have to look at Revelation 18. We're going to read through this uh, in Revelation 18. And as we read, I want you all to consider this. We're going to be talking about Babylon here for just maybe three, four minutes. Babylon is a picture of the world apart from God. Babylon is a picture of unrighteousness. Babylon is a picture of separated from God. Uh, Unrighteousness, materialism, idolatry, wickedness, unbelief, earth dwellers whose names are not written in the book. As we talk about these plagues and these things, these are not what happened to the children of God. If you're thinking, dude, I hope I die before this, that is a bummer. This is not what is happening to the children of God. This is what is happening to those who are earth dwellers whose names are not in the book of life who are characterized here in 18 as Babylon, the fall of Babylon. Now, there are so many parallels. We can't even talk about a tenth of them tonight. We can't even talk about a fifth of them tonight. Parallels between the Babylon and Revelation, the Babylon of history and of Egypt. Parallels between uh, Satan and Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius. Things between John and his response to the angel and Darius's response to Daniel. There are, it was insane. When I said my head hurt at the beginning of this from reading all this stuff, I mean it. There are so many. So we're going to look at a few but I want us to understand it as we read this in light of uh, Revelation 18 in, in Babylon. 
After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the angel was bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice. Y'all, as I read this, there's so much imagery. Try and picture it in your head. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So we see this worldliness that affects all these different people, merchants, people, all, all, all these different people. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. We're going to come back to that because that's our big point for the night. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds, and mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Let me explain something real quick. When that talks about sexual immorality, it's not just talking about those who have been in the world and been physically sexually wrong with the world. That sexual immorality is a picture of seeking desire according to worldly principles as well. It's not just specifically sexual, but it's described right here in that way to show that you're whoring with the world if you do that, to put it plainly. It's not necessarily the sexual acts as much as it is seeking desire in something that is not of God and doing so in a world of unrighteousness, okay? So that's about all I want to explain on that. Um, uh, verse 10, they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. So all these people who have hoard with the world and are not of God are weeping and mourning. Why? Because no one's buying their stuff anymore. What they're selling, no one wants. Or it's not there. Cargo of gold. Okay, as I read this list starting in verse 12, uh, think about what's in your home. You know, this is a call to come out of Babylon, not to take what you like from Babylon that you think is maybe not all that bad and adapt it to your own life. Consider the things that are listed here and just think about what's in your home. This doesn't mean you're going to hell. Um, it's, just, it's good to consider. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. I was reading through Ben's Revelation notes as I was preparing this, one of the things he, he said in reference to that was... Uh, Frankly, that list sounds like everything you'd find in like a Pier 1. You know, all the nice woods and the spices and the little, you know. In fact, we don't even really need diamonds or sapphires or stones that are nice. We, we're to the point where we settle for the fake stuff. You know, give me a big glass that's cut out to look like it, and, and I'm happy with that. Um, and then 
pay way too much for it. And so uh, it's interesting. We're, we're called to come out of her. Now, if you shop at Pier 1, you're not the devil. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we do need to be careful of worldliness and putting our hope in those things because that's what's happened with these merchants here. Look at verse 15. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, the purple, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth was been laid to, has been laid to waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and they mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpets, trumpeters will be heard no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. So these things don't exist in Babylon anymore because it's been demolished violently like a millstone thrown by mighty hand into the sea. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. The light of a lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. And your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all your nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on earth. Our message lies in verse four of that whole thing. That's Babylon. That, that's this picture of the world being wiped out after that seventh bowl of God's wrath is poured out. Now, this is mysterious. I don't want to undo it for you. I, my hope is that you walk away from saying, whoa, that's very heavy. After that seventh bowl is poured out on God's, of God's wrath, and we see Babylon, the picture of the world, the unrighteousness, apart from God, not holy, wiped out, there's a a call in the middle of it in verse 4 to the people of God. And so this is what I want you to hear tonight. This is kind of the point, I guess. Verse 4, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. The people of God are not meant to be people of worldliness. Um, this is not just a little bitty lesson on materialism. This is much greater um, this is about the fact that um, we have a very mighty God who by His very mighty hand has done very mighty things over the course of redemptive history. And we can sit here and look at the, this whole book and see all these beautiful parallels and say, wow, God is very mighty, and this is what He's saying. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in the plagues. Don't be like the ships that were at the sea there who now have nowhere to go. Why do the ships have nowhere to go? Yeah, well, yeah, that's, yeah, part of it. And they're sitting there looking at it saying, all we see is smoke. Everything we've put our hope in has been demolished. Essentially what they had done was they, they have whored with the world and now they're looking at the object of that and they're saying, well, yeah, we're just going to sit here on our ships. We don't have anywhere to go. We don't have anything to deliver. We don't have anything to buy. We don't have anything that's our source of joy anymore. My source of joy is gone. The, the motive behind all the work that the merchants and the people on the ships do, gone. That's what we're seeing here. So why are they sitting there mourning? That's all they've got, mourning and weeping. They don't have anywhere to, there's no direction for them to turn their ships and say, well, I guess we better get back to, oh, there's nothing to get back to. Wiped out, laid waste in a single hour, violently, like a millstone thrown in the water by a mighty hand. 
Okay, turn back to Exodus very quickly. This happened this afternoon, not Exodus. Uh, what I'm about to share, it happened this afternoon, it just kind of blew my mind, and uh, all these parallels start jumping out, and so I want to share with you in a very quick succession <coughs> well, some of these parallels. Uh, turn to Exodus uh, chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 10. We got to see the history of Moses and some of the things that took place briefly. But essentially what happens in verses 1 through 10 is Moses was born and put in the river, and Pharaoh's daughter pulled him out and named him Moses. Now, I'm almost embarrassed to say I did not know until this afternoon what I'm about to share from y'all, share with y'all. Over this whole thing with the Exodus plagues and the plagues in Revelation, seven bowls, we see this picture of God calling his people out, redeeming a people, drawing them out. Why? For his glory. Not because they're righteous, like, ooh, righteous, righteous, righteous. No, unrighteous, and I'm drawing you out, and I'm giving you righteousness. Drawing them out. I did not know this until this afternoon, and I'm wondering, I'm really wondering if all of y'all are going to be like, yeah, I knew that. What's up? Uh, Moses' name in Hebrew means draw out. Duh. How in the world could I not have known that until this afternoon? Draw out. Even his dang name means draw out. And this pattern in redemptive history, I'm going to draw you out, draw you out, draw this people out, draw this out, draw this out. His name means draw out. I did not know that until this afternoon, which shows you how much of my Old Testament I have to study more and more from this point forward. Um, So I began to look at that. I was like, his name means draw out? Are you kidding me? So then I looked at kind of what happened in that first chapter. Then I was like, well, wait. That's a lot like what happens in the next chapter. And hey, that's a lot like what happens in the next chapter. And the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one. And so what I want to do is in the hour that this just made my head almost explode, I want to look at a quick succession, as we're almost out of time, of God drawing His people out. Redemptive history, redeeming His people. Moses was... By the hand of God, it wasn't like, by the way, when people find themselves in these horrible situations, it's not just happenstance like, oh, God wasn't looking. Lucky his hand's mighty enough to reach all the way over there and grab him out. No. I want to say up front, by the hand of God, this is what Moses found himself in. And by that same mighty hand of God, he was delivered out. Now, look at this. Moses was, by the hand of God, born to a Levite woman under Egyptian oppression and ordered to be killed. What we read at the beginning of uh, Exodus is that, um, you know, Pharaoh's like, oh, man, Israel's really great. Let's just go and rough them up so that they don't get too great unless they make war with us with another nation and wipe us out. So they begin to send taskmasters and try and turn Israel into slaves over the course of time, and they're very great. And he says, you know what, let's just kill. He said, hey, uh, midwives, I want you all to kill all the, if it's a boy, just kill them and say, oh, whoops, they, they died in, in the birthing process. And the midwives, uh, luckily by the hand of God again, decided, mm, ah, that, that's not good. And so uh, when Pharaoh said, why didn't you kill him? They said, well, hey, those Israelite women, they are something else. They, they just birthed the baby before we even got there. And we didn't even have a chance to kill him during the birthing process and say it was just a birthing process. And so uh, 
uh, we see the role that they played there. But then Pharaoh commanded, it says in uh, Exodus one twenty two. then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So the command from Moses is kill all the firstborn. Uh-oh, well, Moses plays a really important role. I hope he's not born during the time where Moses said, kill all the firstborn. Well, look what happens here. Moses was, by the hand of God, born to a Levite woman under Egyptian oppression in order to be killed. God drew him out. What was Moses' name again? Drawn out, yeah. can't believe I didn't know that. Then Moses was put into a basket in the river, and what happened? He was drawn out. At which point he was given the name Moses, which means drawn out. Moses was placed into the Egyptian family. God drew him out. As God dealt with Israel, we see that this happens also with other of God's people, for instance. As God dealt with Israel and Moses, it says in Exodus that God remembered His covenant with Abraham. Well, Abraham and his wife Sarah were older than dirt, unable to father many nations. And as they were laughing about even the idea of it, God drew them out and blessed them with a child, Isaac, who was ordered to be sacrificed, killed with a knife on an altar, but, you guessed it, God drew him out. Now, let's get back to Moses, because we don't want to stray too far here. After being drawn out of the Egyptian family by the hand of God, Moses was appointed by God from a burning bush that wouldn't burn to take lead as God drew out Israel from under the oppression of Egypt. It's kind of a theme here. So then come the horrible plagues, at which time the Israelites are drawn out by God to the land of Goshen. And not only the Israelites, but even their livestock are drawn out by God from among the livestock of Egypt. And at the final plague of the Passover, where the angel of death will wipe out each of the firstborn, the sacrificed blood of the Lamb covers the firstborn of Israel, whom God draws out, and they are not killed. At which point, Pharaoh has had enough and says, fine, Israel, go serve your God. Please, leave. So God leads them through the wilderness and into the Red Sea. Now, you probably know what I'm going to say here, but I want to look at something first. I cannot help at this point to think if Wonder thought, if, uh, if Moses ever thought, hmm, this feels oddly familiar. He's being led by God into a body of water. I can't help but wonder if Moses said, I sure hope God draws me out of this water. It's just that oddly familiar thing, like, I feel like I floated in a basket in this before. So the water parts, and as the Egyptians are swallowed up and killed, God draws Israel out of the water. Now we could keep going and going and going and going and going, but I think it would be wise to turn right back over to Revelation 18.4. Skip towards the end. There's a lot in between. We see in Revelation 18.4 a point where we have Babylon engulfed in wickedness, unbelief, and idolatry, and God draws out His people. What does He say? Come out from her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins 
and receive of her plagues. So here's my conclusion for the night. This command of come out of her, my people, this command that we hear at the very end of time here, come out of her, my people, what I'm about to do to Babylon is not what I mean for you to experience. And in fact, the sins that they're engulfed in right now, that is not what I mean for my children to experience. And I'm drawing you out. Come out of her, my people. And that command, come out of her, my people, has been said in a lot of different ways throughout the Scriptures. Come out of her, my people. We've heard it a lot of different ways, especially the New Testament. Is, that's probably what a lot of us have studied a lot more than the Old Testament, which is what I was very convicted of this last few days. Is I was schooled on the fact that Moses means drawn out. Uh, here's the way that we've heard the command before. Set your minds on the things above. Come out of her, my people. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Come out of her, my people. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Come out of her, my people. Put no other gods before me. Come out of her, my people. There's a foundation that undergirds these commands, and that foundation is seen in God's words to John in Revelation, in God's words to Moses in Exodus, and to all of His children throughout all of this thing that we've talked about tonight, which is called redemptive history. And the foundation that undergirds each of those commands of, don't be of the world, you're not of the world. Holy means set apart, different. And this isn't just about what does it look like to be different. I mean, I'm, I'm just, Steve's sermon from Sunday is just ringing in my head. I'm not saying, don't look like the world. I, I don't want it to be what it looks like. What, this is what it means to be a child of God. This is what it is. That's kind of what we talked about Sunday, what it is as opposed to what it looks like. This is what it is. And the thing that undergirds the big what it is that is the foundation of those commands of Set your mind on the things above. Do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Store up treasures in heaven. Do not put any other gods before me. The big foundation there is what we hear in God's words where he says, I am God. You are my people. Worship me and serve me. That's our big conclusion for the night. God's words as he speaks to John through an angel, God's words as he speaks to Moses are, I am God. You are my people. Worship me and serve me. All throughout, why, why were they even being called out of Egypt to serve the Lord? That, that's our call today. And, and, and it's not just, okay, let's go fulfill the call and put a check in the block. I want you all to consider, this is, this is all very mysterious. This is all very heavy, very weighty. I want you all to consider what it means that God is saying, I am God, you are my people. Worship me and serve me. And do so reflecting on all these truths that we've seen over, the pattern, over, over redemptive history, these redemptive patterns that we've seen, these little gospels that start in the garden and go all the way up until the very end of time. Um, God's words, I am God, you are my people, worship me and serve me. Let's pray. God, what a what an amazing work uh, that happens only by your hand. God, I'm so fearful that we could look at all these lofty things and, and uh, look at these amazing things that have taken place over the, the course of redemptive history, and I, I'm so fearful that we could just walk away from here saying, man, my life is boring. This is hard. Uh, that, nothing like that happens now. I, I don't see God at work like that. 
I don't see what's going on. And I pray that each of us would hear the very real call from God to come out of her, my people. I pray that when we consider Babylon and we consider the unrighteousness and the wickedness that it's about and how it's representative of worldliness right now, I pray that we would run until we can't run anymore, sprint out of Babylon. God, I, I just, I, I'm very fearful um, as we consider these things that we'll just consider, okay, well, this is what I need to do. This is an application point. Don't be worldly. Don't be materialistic. And it's so much more complex than that. And so my prayer is that you would make very real in our hearts and our minds how much more complex it is and that we would behold the mystery uh, of your message, behold the mystery of your works, behold the mystery of the plagues, behold the mystery of these things in Revelation that are very hard to understand. God, we kind of great, great privilege to have the scriptures that we can open up and a great privilege to know that they're all breathed out by you and profitable. So God, my prayer is that uh, as we leave here, we would uh, respond appropriately um, and that we would um, not just go through the motions and works of things, but that we would be obedient to you because you are God and we are your people and we're called to worship you and to serve you. God, again, we count it a great privilege to be here, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.